I am glad to be here. Thank you for allowing me to be here this weekend. Um, I, I dearly love the church. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm in eastern North Carolina. I'm from rural Kentucky. Um, where I grew up, you had to get a little bit lost to find it. Uh, it there, was this, there was 12 head of people lived within three and a half miles, and five of them was my family. So it was a very small community, very rural, uh, and that's just the way I grew up. And, and one of the things that was instilled in me from a very early age that I neglected later in life for a little while, but anyway, it was instilled the importance of church. And as I grew and, uh, and, and, and developed and became a preacher 24 years ago, uh, got into ministry, uh, here I am today. And my passion for the church is, is greater now than it ever has been. Uh, God dearly loves his church. Uh, he sent his son for the church. And that means that as uh, one, of, uh, one of his uh, voice boxes, uh, one, of, one of the people that God uses to proclaim his truth... I dearly love the church. And here's the thing. God's church needs to love the church. And so I, all of that being said, I have some friends of mine from a, a western part of the country. And uh, they found out I did. I, I love preaching revivals too, by the way. I can come in and say all kinds of stuff, get you all mad, and then I go home and you're mad at Archie. No, I, I do love I do love revivals. I love preaching. Um, and, and so anyway, they found out I was coming to do a revival and they knew I had just done one. And they were like, do you, you all still do revivals? I said, yeah, we still do revivals. Where I'm at, we do two a year. Uh, we do one in the spring right uh, before Easter and we do one in the fall uh, after what we call homecoming or right before what we call homecoming. And, uh, and, and they said, is that, you know, is that still effective? And I said, well, it depends on your definition of effective. And it depends on what you expect out of it. I will say this. Revivals, uh, revivals in the 21st century are not what they were 50 years ago, 40 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. Um, uh, revivals, for, for my experience, my, revivals are not largely evangelistic tools like they used to be. What I do see, and I think the value is at least of at least the same importance, is that God's people come in to get energized for this for this week or three days or however long you do revivals, and they get some intense focus time in God's word. They get a spiritual shot in the arm. You know, everybody's worried about getting their flu shots and their pneumonia shots and shingle shots. Well, you're getting a shot in the arm of the gospel. You're getting a shot in the arm of God's will and purpose for your life. And hopefully, as we leave this place, we will leave this place in better shape to serve the Lord than we were when we walked in the door. And so for this weekend, I am glad to be with you. This revival may not sound, the sermons may not sound like revival sermons that you're used to. But after prayer and, uh, and, and, and doing some talking and, and soul searching, um, this is where I want to go this weekend. And it's all about God's church. And that's where we're going to be and that's where we're going to get to in just a minute. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you, God, for loving us so much that you sent your son to die for us. And that one event, which was the, 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 the greatest event in history, as, and at the same time, the saddest event in history, Father, has been the one event in history that will ultimately change everybody's life. God, thank you 
that, that, that we are able to gather as believers, that we are able to fellowship one with another, folks of like-minded faith, God, to gather together, to lift up your name, to praise your name, to, to learn about your son and learn about your will for our lives. Father God, thank you for this time that we get to be, get, be together. And may we hear your truth and not just hear your truth, but put it into practice in our lives. God, you're a good God. And I pray that we would love you back and that we would love folks around us the way that you want us to. It's in Jesus name I pray. Amen. My name's Kurt, and you all know that. My wife's name is Jenny. I have three children, uh, 17, 15, and 13. Um, and, uh, and at my house, it's kind of like a zoo right now. And uh, we're counting down today till they all graduate and go to college so we can get our house back. But anyway, uh, we have three uh, wild youngins at our house. Uh, we have been where we're at in, uh, in Martin County for, I'm working on 12 years now. Uh, and, and so I, I'm sorry they couldn't be here with you, but they had school and some things they couldn't get out of this weekend. So uh, you just get me. But I'm glad to be here with you all uh, tonight. Let's, uh, if you want to turn in your, in your cell phones or your mobile devices or your uh, Bible you got in front of you. Uh, oh, you still have one? Uh, that, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, that's what we call a book. And, uh, and it's got pages and those pages have got writing on them. So turn with me in your cell phones or your antiquated books. No, I'm kidding. Turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in one very short section of the Bible uh, to start things off tonight, Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. Two verses, two powerful verses that are going to dictate everything else we're going to talk about tonight. Just to lay the uh, to just to, to to lay the background here, in case you're not familiar with it, uh, in Acts chapter two we find the uh, beginning of what we know as the church. Imagine if you would, you're stuck on a deserted island. You've never been in church. You've never been exposed to Christianity. You've never been exposed to how the church works. It's just you on an island, and you find a Bible. And you start reading through that Bible and you see who God is and you see about his character and his qualities in the Old Testament and what he expects from his folks in the Old Testament. And then you read about this, the, the, you know, you get to Matthew and you start reading about this, this, this change. It's, it looks almost like a change in direction, but it's, it's all part of God's plan, right? And, and then you learn about this, the, the son of God who became flesh named Jesus. And, and, and then you hear him talking about starting his uh, church and, and Peter is going to be the rock on which the church is, man, what is that going to look like? And then you get to Acts chapter, uh, you get to the book of Acts, and from there through the book of Revelation, through the rest of the Bible, you find out what the church is supposed to look like. And if you, if that's all you had, and you needed to know what the church looked like, that's where you look. New Testament from Acts on, specifically Acts chapter two on. Well, that's the same for today if you're not on a deserted island. If we want to know what the church is supposed to look like, how we're supposed to interact with one another, how we're supposed to love God, we go to the New Testament. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter has just, I mean, he has just whooped out this sermon. Uh, it has been spirit-led. It has been spirit-filled. It was noticeably spirit-filled by everybody in attendance. He speaks to them. He cuts. It says they're cut to the heart. The truth of God goes into their heart. And uh, the Holy Spirit has prepared them for this moment. They hear it. And now it's on them. 
they got a decision to make and they cry out to Peter, what must we do to be saved? Acts chapter 2 verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on to say that 3,000 were added to their number that day and they were amazed at what they saw in the church. Whew, that gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45 are the beginnings of what the church looked like. Acts 2 verse 44 says this. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Two very powerful verses. Please let me tell you this. This is not a sermon about money. This is not a sermon about you giving more money. This is nothing like that. There's more to this than just those two verses say on paper. There is a heart involved here. And that's what we need to talk about tonight. Is the heart involved with this new church. This, this group of people brought together by the blood of Jesus. What do they look like? What are they, how do they act? Well, I got to tell you, nobody sacrificed like the early church. Nobody throughout history, it seems, sacrificed like the, the, uh, the early church. I mean, these early Christians didn't just give money. They were generous with everything they had. You could say that they were radically generous. What would happen through our churches today if we were just as radically generous? And again, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the giving of everything that they had. Think about it. One guy got a new name because he gave so much stuff to people. Remember Barnabas? His name wasn't Barnabas to start with. He got the name Barnabas because that means the son of encouragement. And, and, and people took note of what he was doing for the, for the church. He saw needs and he reacted to it. That's the heart of those first believers. Again, this is not about money. This is about a heart condition of what happens when we give ourselves completely to the lordship of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a, it's a radical transformation. If you look the same now, now that you're a Christian, as you did 10 years before you became a Christian, I, I, I don't want to get you upset at me, but I'll say it and I mean it. I question your salvation. If there is, if there ain't nothing different in you, now than there was 10 years before you accepted Jesus Christ or proclaimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I got to tell you something. I question your salvation because everybody that we know that came in contact with the gospel, everybody that we know came in contact with Jesus, their lives were radically transformed. And this is just an example in Acts chapter 2 of what that transformation looks like. Think about what that would look like in our churches today. If the radical transformation that took place in people's lives was so evident that people were in awe. You know what? I'm a critic of the church. And, and, and I need to be. I, all of us need to. And I say critic, not I have something against the church. I mean, critical. being critically minded means taking an evaluation of what you have around you and making changes that you need to, to to get that thing where it needs to be. And so when I say I'm a critic of the church, it doesn't mean I don't like the church. I love the church passionately. And I think you do too here. I mean, you wouldn't be here. A friend of mine, Bob Molden, says this. I don't, and, and I, I would say that. I don't know y'all that well, but I will say this. 
you all sitting in this room right now, if somebody walked through that door with a gun and said, you, uh, you know, if you don't deny Jesus, I'm going to kill you right where you sit. I have full faith that most everybody in this room, if not everybody in this room, would say, kill me. That one decision to give your life for Christ. I mean, I, I think people would do that. But that's not the bigger question. I, 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 think, it, I think it's admirable and noble that someone would give their life for, for Jesus. They would die for Jesus. Here's the bigger question that Bob would ask, and I'll ask you all. Will you live daily? See, giving your life for Christ, that's a one-time act, right? Living your life for Jesus is a day-in, day-out act. And this radical transformation that takes place in us when we meet Jesus and he takes something that was and he makes it into something it should be, should be something that the rest of the world notices. We're responsible. We're stewards, as the Bible calls us, or managers of everything that God has given us. We're responsible to use our resources, which include money as well as time, talents, and your very will in a way that impacts the kingdom of God. God doesn't just give us resources for our enjoyment and, and, and enjoying what God has given us is not a sin. That's not what I'm saying either. What I'm saying is that's not sole purpose of what God blesses us with. God blesses us so that we might be a blessing to others and that we might advance the kingdom. Now, sometimes that means people are paid preachers and that's what they do. They make a living preaching the gospel and teaching and that's fine, but that's not everybody. Not everybody does that. The world doesn't just need more preachers. It certainly can use more preachers. But the Bible, uh, the, what the world needs is, uh, is uh, zookeepers and electricians and, uh, you know, uh, janitors or whatever that are Christians that are living their life with whatever they've been given in whatever circumstances for his glory, for his kingdom. God never blesses us to just sit down with on what we have. He blesses us so that we can bless others. So tonight, I hope that we'll be able to see what it takes to honestly declare this phrase. I will serve God. Because that's what it all boils down to. We're good at serving ourselves, right? Think about it. What's the first, what is one of the first words that a baby, child, infant learns? Or it doesn't learn. What's one of the first words that an infant says? Well, that's the best one because it's before mama. But usually before dada is no. Or mine. Remember? Where's that come from? <laughs> I mean, they come out of the womb with that programmed into them. That's the way human nature is. We're very good at taking care of us, aren't we? When Jesus comes into our lives... A radical transformation takes place that we no longer become number one. We no longer become the focus of our attention. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord, authority of our lives, then God's will and God's purposes become the end all be all for every single thing that we do. The church exists as an as a ER for wounded people. We had a knucklehead tried to divide the church. Well, he was successful. He, he divided the church that, that, we, that I served at in Indianapolis, the church that they came to know the Lord in. Uh, this knucklehead comes in and he wants it about him. And he literally said to us in leadership, if you don't do it my way, I will take my toys and go home. At which I went and opened the door 
And then chairman of the elders said, don't do that. You know, later he had to call me out on that. I shouldn't have done that. But I mean, that's how I felt at the moment. Fine, go. I'll help you to the door. I'll help you out the door. I'll even put the stuff in your car. But if that's your attitude, go. And this knucklehead, his purpose for living was that he might be elevated. That's not Christianity and that's not faith. Our purpose in life is not that we might be elevated, but it is that God might be elevated. And you need to, and, and so this knucklehead goes down the road less than a mile and starts a church to compete with us. Uh, it's no longer in existence. It didn't last very long. Or I don't think it's in existence. He ain't in existence anyway. Uh, and a lot of those people came back. But anyway, he started this church and the big sign out in front of the church, he called this church the salvage yard. And in front of the church on the sign, it said, no traditions, no politics, no baggage. To which we joked, no people. Because everybody has got baggage, traditions, and politics, right? And we got to learn how to use that and form that into God's people and use where we're at. Here's the deal. We, we, the church serves as an ER for wounded people. Everybody's got scars, scrapes, wounds. They've got baggage. They've got issues. They've got warts and wrinkles. They've got things about them that they hate. They've got things about them that they wish nobody ever knew. These people need Jesus. Amen. You needed Jesus. Amen. Haughtiness, pride, arrogance. We got to get those things out of the way because here's the deal. If I'm rich and wealthy and don't know Jesus and I'm poor as a dog and don't know and I do know Jesus and we both die, what's going to happen to us? We're going to the same place, right? We're both going in the ground. An end comes to what we are here, but that's not the end. Amen. There's something beyond I had a preacher friend tell me, oh, it was very profound. Last two weeks ago, I heard him say this, that have both heaven and hell will be filled with believers. And when people hear that first, they're like, oh, no, if people go to hell or people don't believe. Mm -mm. Day of judgment. What does Revelation tell us? And on the day of judgment, when Jesus comes back, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Heaven and hell will equally be filled with believers. But at that point, it's too late. So it's our job, guys, as the church to reach out to the people that need Jesus. Who needs Jesus? Romans 3.23 says, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of, of sin, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Everybody that you know needs Jesus. And the church needs to exist as a place to where those people can come find Jesus. The church gets a bad press because we stand for we stand for issues. We don't stand for issues. You shouldn't stand for issues. As Christians, you should stand for truth and stand for God. And those who don't believe in God or those who don't accept that truth are going to be in opposition to that. It's just the way it is. And so we don't go around standing against things. That's not what the church needs to do. Nobody needs to go out and stand against this and speak against that. You stand for truth. And when you stand for truth, the Bible tells us that light and darkness cannot coexist. There's going to be a difference. We stand for light. 
And when we do that, we get a bad press. We get a bad press because uh, societal immorality, uh, personal immorality, cultural sway, all of those things kind of butt heads with us because we stand for something different than the rest of the world does. But I need to tell you, <laughs> the church, not the building, the people have been motivated to serve in areas of need regardless of what the world says. And when that happens, when God's people serve in areas that they see there's a need, the world pays attention. And the world, I will say that the world is made better when God's people do what God wants. I'll give you some examples. I'm, I'm going to look at some examples. And, and I'm going to give you some examples from different places. I'm also going to give you some examples from India. I have been to, uh, I've been to right many countries. And I've done mission trips all over the United States and, and other parts of the world. I am most familiar with India. And so a lot of what I'm going to be telling you is going to have to do with the mission that we see there in India. Uh, because again, I'm, I'm most familiar with that. But I want you to pay attention what happens when God's people serve God and they see what needs to be done and they do it. All right. Uh, in England, William Wilberforce, along with the Clapham sect there in, in England, led the fight against uh, for the abolition of the slave trade. And as a result, they were the very first ones to declare slavery illegal. Why? Because somebody said, we need to change this. This isn't right. And they stood up for it. In the 19th century, the Industrial Revolution had led a drift to the inner cities because of, of, of just what was happening culturally. And it was the Quakers, the Evangelicals, and the Methodists who applied themselves vigorously to meeting those needs. And a national movement of Christian missions to help the poor was founded. Huge sums of money was raised by voluntary subscriptions. Uh, armies of volunteers went into slum areas to offer practical help. Attention was paid to the misfits of society like the drunks and the criminals and the, and the prostitutes and as well as homeless teenagers. And in 1865, William Booth started the Salvation Army. What's going on today? Still, the Salvation Army. It provided much needed, much needed medical care uh, in inner cities and homes, especially for women who had been induced into prostitution. Unmarried mothers were cared for, and these projects have spread all over the world. And do you know today that as the Salvation Army still does what it does, not one penny is paid to the to the leaders and the and the and the leadership of the uh, Salvation Army. Uh, those who serve in the Salvation Army do it for zero dollars. Everything that is given goes to the helping uh, of, those, of those different ministries that they support. Uh, Dr. Thomas Barnado set up his children's homes after seeing the plight of thousands of hungry children's in, uh, children and, and uh, homeless children in the East End of uh, London. Inner city missions bringing a combination of medical care and the gospel were set up. And Christians were at the forefront of this movement as well as the temperance Movements, care for the blind, care for the deaf, where uh, the deaf, deaf were uh, in those areas were, were 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 looked at like you know what Jesus did those things, so why don't we do those things? They saw needs, and as believers and as lovers of God's will and God's kingdom, they motivated themselves to meet those people's needs. Do you know that the use of Braille worldwide in schools for the deaf was invented by a Christian? Do you know why they invented Braille? 
not to teach them how to read cat or dog, but how to read the Bible, that they would even be able to give the gospel to those who were robbed of their sight. St. Joseph's Hospice in Hackney, uh, founded by the Sisters of Charity in 1905, was the prototype for the modern day hospice movement. And I, I, I'll go out on a limb here and say that there's probably not anybody in this room whose lives have not been positively impacted by the work of hospice. Myself, watching my father die in dignity and with love and care of people that took care of him in the hospice wing at Danville, uh, in Danville, Kentucky, I have the greatest admiration for hospice workers. It started because a woman saw a Christian woman saw a need and did it. Through the efforts of CICM, seven children's homes provide thousands, uh, 5,500 actually, uh, of India's children with a hope and a future. I have visited many of those, and I'll tell you more about those on Sunday morning. But these kids are, in India, there's a caste system where if you're in this caste, you're the low end, and you'll never move out of that, and you, you, you really messed up in some former life, and you've been reincarnated into this awful caste, and, and so they're not going to help you, because if they help you, then one of their 33 million gods or goddesses will get mad at somebody for helping someone in this lower caste. So Ajay and Indu Law come into India, they go back to India, and they start these children's homes, and they start reaching out to the kids that nobody is going to reach out to. I'll show you a picture on Sunday morning of a child that we found, and this is not uncommon, that you find children in trash piles, you find children abandoned at train stations, or you find them, uh, uh, they found one child in a bag on the side of the road. Uh, a guy was walking down the road, the bag was moving around. He thought somebody had thrown an animal out. And so he was gonna help the animal get out of the bag, open the bag, and it was an infant still with the umbilical cord attached to the placenta uh, in that bag. These are the children that are taken to, to the children's homes there in India. These are the children that are given literally life and not just given life, but then they're shown Jesus Christ. And Hindu law will say that we are bu busy building an army for the Lord. What a beautiful picture. The blind and deaf schools of India, they started... Uh, three blind and deaf schools. Uh, they started a leper colony that I got to visit the last time that I went in, in March. Uh, the, uh, they have uh, two, uh, several preachers, a, a network of preachers who specifically go in and uh, it still exists. You may not believe it, but you're wrong. I'm right. They still go in and get people out of slavery. There are 22 million enslaved people in the world today. At the height of the African slave movement, there were 13 million. There are nearly double the number of slaves in the world today than there were at the height of the African slave movement. And these guys are going in literally purchasing kids. We were able to purchase 45 children out of slavery. The boys, they work uh, sla uh, the slave labor that they work at is farming. The girls are domestic or sex slavery. And they are as young as nine years old. 45, they have, they have literally rescued thousands of children out of slavery. Why? Because they love Jesus and they see the value of people. Extreme poverty worldwide has been cut in half, reduced from 52% to 26% in the last uh, 25 years. 
Uh, I, I watched in Demo, India, as 450 widows and 250 school-aged children are fed, clothed, and given nutritional supplements and the Word of God on a weekly basis in, uh, in, in just one church building. In central India, Indians are overwhelmingly preferring to go to the hospitals that are run by Ajay and Hindu law than they would rather go to the government-run hospitals. Here's something neat. So th these are people that are motivated to serve, right? And they're motivated not because of selfish ambition. They're motivated by the love of God, to go show the love of God, to be the love of God, to distribute God's word to those in need. In India, uh, 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 Ajay is persecuted, uh, if not weekly, uh, a couple times a month. Uh, he's usually uh, called to go to the police department for something. Uh, at one time, he had 32 lawsuits against him just in one city. And the man, the main prosecutor in that city of Demo, India, uh, his mother got sick. His mother wound up at one of the hospitals that Ajay and Indu Law run. She was given incredible care. She, she, was, she was restored. Her health was restored. And this lawyer, who is a devout Hindu, asked for a meeting with Ajay. And in the meeting, he said, look, I got to tell you, uh, you got 32 lawsuits against you right now. Uh, when I get to the office on Monday, you will have no lawsuits against you. I'm not going to represent them. I'm not going to prosecute these. Matter of fact, uh, if anyone ever brings another lawsuit against you, you call me and I'll represent you because of the way that you love my mother. That's the love of God. Amen. That makes changes. It's visible and it's evident. And the world is made better when God's people get together. The church is the only organization with hundreds of millions of members and the capacity to mobilize hundreds of millions of volunteers. And the church is unrivaled in that capacity. And if you want to respond to the massive challenges of meeting needs, both local, global, physical, and spiritual, then the church is the organization with the legs to get it done. If, if God's people will do his work and if God's people will behave like his church, then the world around his people is undeniably made better. And the world around Oak Grove can be made undeniably better when God's people commit themselves to his purposes, loving him and loving others the way that God wants them to to do it. My purpose this weekend is going to hopefully be able to share with you the need of the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's but one name under heaven by which men are saved, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way to the Father except through me, he says. The church has got to be motivated to be that. The church has got to be motivated to show that. The church has got to be motivated to be the institution that God, that God started through Jesus Christ. I want to give you four quick points and we'll be done. Four realities that we need to know. Number one, heaven is a team effort. Heaven is a team effort. A lot of times, historically speaking, church hires a preacher and they're like, all right, preacher, you go win the lost. And, and you know what? A preacher can win the lost, can he? I mean, you, you can do it one person at a time, right? What happens when the church goes out to win the lost? 
Instead of one person with the purpose of winning the lost, you've got a hundred people serving together to reach the lost. And what happens? Exponentially, your ability, your reach, your power, the power that you have to go out and, 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 and manifest God's being God's hands and feet and, and vocal cords is raised when the, the church works together. See, heaven is a team effort. First Peter, Peter writes in First uh, Peter chapter four, verses seven through 11, at the end uh, or the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded, self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. I tell this to my kids all the time. I tell it to the people at Christian Chapel all the time. We are one body. Amen. That means the body, there's 217 bones in the human body. It's 27 muscles from my fingertip to my earlobe to do this. I just use 27 muscles to do that. It takes, uh, what is it, 15 muscles to, to, uh, to frown and nine muscles to smile. Our bodies are complex, right? The church of God's church is complex. And I love administering your gifts according to God's varied grace. God has called us to be different things. We're not all the same. We're all, I love it that we're so different. I love God, this kaleidoscope, this beautiful picture that God has painted with, with all these different colors and backgrounds and experiences. And all of this is brought together to be one body. So whether you're a toenail or a nose hair, you're an important part of the body. Why did I pick toenails and nose hairs? Uh, because most people would rather not have either one. Uh, nose hairs, as you get older, get longer, right? And uh, toenails, you always get them caught on your, uh, you know, you turn over in the bed and you lacerate your wife's leg because your toenails are too long. And, and I mean, they're just a pain, aren't they? They're just a pain. Well, guess what? Where I'm from, we have peanuts. We raise peanuts. I don't know if you all have ever seen peanuts being picked. It is the dustiest job I've ever seen in my life. It, literally, literally, <laughs> you can taste dirt by breathing it. That's how much dust is in the air. That's not pleasant. Think about how more pleasant it would be if you didn't have those little hairs in there to filter that air coming through there, right? Or, I mean, isn't it awful when you hit your thumb uh, uh, with a hammer when you're hanging a picture that your, your wife's been hounding you about and you finally get to it and what do you know? You hit your finger with a, with a hammer. It hurts, don't it? Think about how much more it would hurt if you didn't have a nail on there to protect your finger when you did it. Oh, this has nothing to do with my sermon, but did you know the most painful thing in the world, the most painful thing in the world is two o'clock in the morning when you have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and you get your pinky toe caught on the laundry basket, there is nothing that hurts any worse than that. I guess if you step, if you had the one pinky toe in the laundry basket and you stepped on a Lego with the other one, that might be, you might just die. I don't know. But anyway, whatever you are, toenails or nose hairs, you're an important part of the body. And the body is varied and the body is different, but all of it works together because heaven is a team effort. Secondly, Jesus shows us his expectations of how we're supposed to view one another. Jesus shows us very clearly how we should view each other. 
John chapter 13, probably very familiar to most of you out here. John chapter 13, verse 12 through 15. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on, returned to his place. He said, do you, under, uh, do you understand what I've done for you? You, you remember this part? Remember the, having the last supper and, and they come in and Jesus does the lowest job of the house. They would literally hire a servant to do this job because it was so nasty. And you wanted to be hospitable to the people that came into your home. You would, they would come in, they would take off their little flip flops because that's what you wore back then. And to refresh you and to show hospitality, they would have hired somebody, because this is an awful job, to come up to your feet and wash your feet and pick out the toe jam and freshen your little feet and dry it off and make you feel all comfortable. Guess who did that job? Jesus. He picks up a bowl and he starts to do the nastiest job in that building. When he's done, he puts his clothes, returns to his place. Do you understand what I've done? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's right. That's what I am. Verse 14, now that I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Verse 15, I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. It takes humility to pick out toe jam, don't it? And yet Jesus sets the example for how we're supposed to view other people. Are you willing to wash somebody's foot? Now, it doesn't mean that we need to have foot washings in order to go to heaven. Some people do that, and that's great. doesn't mean that's what we're doing. It's not a requirement. But it is a requirement that we lower ourselves to whatever position we need to do in order to show God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy. Somebody did it for you at some point, didn't they? Who are we to withhold that? No, Jesus sets the example. Three, Jesus calls us to an attitude, not a specific action. He calls us to a specific attitude, not a specific action. Now, this goes back to that very first two verses we read about their heart, right? Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes to the church in Galatia. He says, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. There's a heart here. You know what? I got to be honest with you. True confessions of the preacher. There are people that I serve now and where I'm at that I ain't going to cry at their funeral. I'm sorry. Y'all are shocked. Doesn't mean I don't love them. You see what I'm saying? I serve because that's what God's called me to do. And what God's called me to do doesn't have any place for how I think about it. God didn't ask me, so Kurt, what do you think about this? Is this a good idea? Because this is the idea I want you to do. He didn't ask my opinion. He said, this is what I want you to do. And so I got to, sometimes I got to suck it up, buttercup. And I got to do the right thing because it's the right thing, right? That's what God called us to do. Now, I didn't mean to shock you all by saying that, but think about it. I can love you properly. I can love you the way that God wants me to love you, and I don't have to be your best friend. Matter of fact, we might be very different. Good chance when you get 100 people together, you're going to have uh, 92 different opinions, right? Those things go out the door. When we love people as God called us to love people, those aren't the things we're supposed to be concerned about in the first place. I don't care if you use a guitar when you worship. I don't care if you got, your, got the words on the screen. I don't care what color your carpet is. I don't care if you take communion on Wednesday night. What I do care about is that you are committed to God's word and un, un, 
unshakingly committed to God's word and God's church. Those are the things that I care about. All the other things, it's periphery. doesn't matter. Are you committed to the core principles you find in God's word? I will never shake. I will never move on what I view about baptism, about the Holy Spirit, about the Trinity, about heaven, about hell, about sin, about the consequences of sin. I will never change those things. The incarnate Jesus coming to earth. I will never, ever, ever. You can do whatever you want to do to me. And I will never shake on those firm commitments. But all the other stuff, are we really getting worked up about that ignorant stuff? That's got no place in the church. And it's got no place in the way we love each other. There are people who are dying and going to hell. And you're going to get mad because they wore blue jeans instead of a three-piece suit. That's the way some people view it. Are you kidding me? People are dying and going to hell. And this place and the people in it serve with the antidote to that. Think about cancer. If you had a friend of yours who had cancer and you had the antidote in your pocket. What kind of a jerk are you that you don't give it to your friend? Think about your, your kid. Your kid develops cancer and you've got the, you have got the antidote to cancer in your pocket. How bad you got to hate them to not give it to them freely. Well, everybody's going to hell without Jesus. You have the antidote. You can't force it, but you can give them the option. You can give them everything they need to know to accept the antidote to the, to the sin situation that they have in their life that without Jesus will not change. Jesus calls us to an attitude, not an action. Love people. How? Last thing, Jesus calls us to act in opposition to our pride. Galatians 6 verses 3 through 5 says this. If anybody, I oh, love this. I love the way Paul writes things. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't pull any punches. I love it. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. The older I get and the further I go in my life, the less I can stomach arrogance. I, I, I just, it, it has no place in God's church. It has no place in God's people. Arrogance. What? Why? You're better than somebody? Really? What happens when you die? Same thing happens to them. Oh, and by the way, mister, I got it all figured out. What were you before you accepted Jesus Christ? You're in the same boat they were. It's as ridiculous as being lost on the ocean in two lifeboats. And you're in one lifeboat and you're making fun of the lifeboat over here because they got a two-foot hole in their boat. <laughs> you got a two-foot hole in your boat. <laughs> it's as ridiculous as doing that when you got a one-foot hole in your own boat. What's going to happen to both? <laughs> They're both sinking. Arrogance has no place in God's people. And Paul says, if you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. Each one of you should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else. For he should each carry his own load. If I got to compare myself to my neighbor, you know, being good on the cosmic scale of good and bad here. If I use my neighbor as my rule, as my guide, there might be a chance that I can win that one, right? If I compare myself to my neighbor, because my neighbor, he's a jerk. But do we compare ourselves to our neighbor? Who are we supposed to compare ourselves to? Jesus Christ. 
let me just let you in on this one. You're going to lose every time. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought, Paul says, but with sober judgment. Mm. Woo. Church is a place that everybody needs Jesus. You needed Jesus and you found him. Are you excited about telling somebody else? Are you excited about serving the Lord with everything that you've got? Not just the Sunday part or the Friday night part or the Wednesday night part, but the 24-7 part. Are you excited to serve the Lord with every single fiber that makes up your body and your soul? That's what God wants. And when God's people do that, the world is forever changed. Fact of the matter is the church is fluid. It's ever changing with the people that come through the doors. And we must be looking for ways to plug folks in and to meet the present needs of the church, this church body, the community. But beyond that, we must also be looking to the church of the future. Oak Grove must consider now practices, ministries that will benefit future generations of worshipers here as well as empower them to reach out to a lost and dying world that doesn't know Jesus. I don't mind telling you that when we see the future, I mean, every day that we're alive is another day further away from the Garden of Eden. It ain't getting no better. And I'm not a negative person at all, but I am a realist. And what I see in the future is things are going to be difficult, even more difficult now than, than they were, or even more difficult than they are now. And it's going to require all hands on deck. God's church was never meant to sit idly by, to let others do the work, or simply put in their time, retire from serving for the Lord, get your retirement certificate. You don't get one of those until you die, by the way. You know, serving the Lord, it doesn't pay much, but it's got a great retirement program, doesn't it? God's church was never meant to sit out by, let other people do what needs to be done. God's church is an active and living and breathing entity. And just like him, God is active and living and he needs us to be active and living. God's church is working and busy, just like God is working and busy. God's church is looking for ways to reach the lost and attend to the flock, just like God is looking for ways to reach the lost and attend to the flock. I know this. God doesn't want you to do nothing. If you'll look down, I mean, you don't have the same thing we got in our place. You don't have little brackets holding your pews down, I don't think. Maybe you do. But I tell my folks, do you? You got those? All right. Notice there's something in those brackets. What's in those brackets? Screw. It's holding it down. It don't need you to hold it down. Your job is not to sit and hold the pews in place. Your job is to work and serve the Lord. Amen. What are you doing? to reach a lost and dying world. Because I got to tell you, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God loves the world. Doesn't love sin, but he loves the people that he made and he wants you to love them too the way that they need to be loved like he tells us to so that they can see Jesus. Paul says that our actions are, we are mirrors that reflect the glory of God. You know, a mirror doesn't make its own image. It only shows what's looking at it. What's the world see when they look at you? Dear Heavenly Father, I love you so much. And I thank you for your church. And I thank you that we get to be together and serve you and love you and worship you. And, and God, I just thank you so much 
that you reached into our lives, you showed us Jesus and God, you gave us an opportunity to respond. Father God, help us to remember that we were in need of a savior just like our neighbor, just like our family member, just like our coworker, just like the person down the street, just like the person shopping in a grocery store. Father, help us to see people the way that you see people. And God, help us to show them your light. Father, we love you. Be with us. Give us the strength to do what we know we need to do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.